Father, we come before you just, again, giving you thanks. You tell us to be in an attitude of prayer, always giving thanks for everything that you do for us. And there's nothing that we have that you don't provide. There's no blessing that exists that doesn't come from a fountain that you have created. And so, Lord, we ask that you would spill over onto us this morning uh, through your word. May it take root in our heart and may we learn your ways. And know that you are gentle and you are humble, but you are just, Lord. And we pray that that would be manifest through us in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Here in chapter 24, we have the Israelites who have left Egypt and we've gone through getting the Ten Commandments and a couple of chapters of getting additional commandments of which Moses has written down these things for the people. This is the point at which they become established as a nation where God actually comes down and he meets with the elders and they see him face to face. There's a lot more going on there than, uh, not that the text would have to say, but our understanding lacks a little bit of what exactly is taking place. He comes down and he meets with The nation of Israel, and specifically Moses, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel. And so all of these people go up to the mountain there, and they worship God, but at a distance except for Moses. Secondly, worship required a life, a taking of a life before they could go before God. A sacrifice had to be made. Worship revealed the glory of God. Once they worshiped, they actually saw God's glory. And then fourth, worship was responded to by God. God responds to our worship. We might think that we respond to God. Well, God responds to us as well. And worship remitted required all to be patiently committed. In other words, worship delivered required something of us or something of the Israelites. And we're going to make the connection there. First of all, we are going to look at the perspective of the Israelites and what they did. And I'll give you these five points again as we go through. But in chapter 24, verse 1, it reads, Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and the 70 elders of Israel. You are to worship at a distance, but Moses alone is to approach the Lord. The others must not come near, and the people may not come up with him. So this is where it was worship at a distance, except for Moses. It's not that they didn't see God. They saw God, and they had communion with God. But Moses was the only one who was chosen to go and talk with God. And this is where I believe God manifested himself. It's called a Christophany or a Theophany in the Old Testament where he actually materialized. It's an Old Testament appearance of God in human form. And so Moses got to witness this. Now Moses talked with, I believe, Jesus Christ. It says in the Old Testament, it's Yahweh, but they're one and the same. The God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they are of the same essence, but they are different personalities. Jesus is not the Father, the Father is not Jesus, and Jesus is not the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is not Jesus or the Father. They are separate in their personalities, but they are all three God. And the God of the burning bush, 
the great I am. That is Jesus Christ, as we're learning about on Wednesday. Jesus used the phrase I am a couple of times that we noticed last week when we were going through the book of John. He claimed to be the God of the burning bush. And so this is Jesus Christ who is showing up here. Verse 3 says, When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice, Everything the Lord has said, we will do. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. Now, there have been critics that have postulated that there wasn't even a written language at this particular time. And so Moses couldn't have done this thing. This Bible was created later. Moses wasn't actually the author. And Moses is considered the author of the first five books of the Bible. The Pentateuch is what that's called. Some just refer to it as the law, and others refer to the entire Old Testament as the law. But it was Moses who wrote these things down. And you might say, well, was Moses smart enough? to write this stuff down wasn't he just a shepherd yes he was but before that he was in egypt and scripture says in acts chapter 7 verse 22 moses was educated in all the wisdom of the egyptians and was powerful in speech and action and this was a man who stuttered remember but he was powerful in speech and in action do you think he understood hieroglyphics of course he did. He, he was trained in all the ways of the Egyptians. He knew how to write. He knew how to read. He knew several things about science and astronomy and the wisdom of the day in Egypt. He was trained in all of it. Now, he took a sabbatical of about 40 years and he became a shepherd. But whenever God wanted him to have some knowledge that he previously had gotten, it would come forth and God would use him with that knowledge. That's kind of like us. You go through the scripture, and you might think you don't remember the scripture, but once you have it in your heart, God can recall it at any time. You just have to be willing. You have to engage people in a scriptural conversation, a conversation about God, and if you do so, God will bring these things to mind, especially if he wants you to bring encouragement to somebody or if he wants you to deliver the gospel, the gospel being the good news that all of us are under the judgment of sin and we will be judged and thrown into hell if we don't have Jesus Christ as our Savior. And if God wants to use you in such a way, he will recall this information to your mind and you will be able to deliver it to the person which he wants to hear it. It goes on to say, He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half the blood and put it in bowls and the other half he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people and they responded, we will do everything the Lord has said we will obey. If you do any archaeological reading at all, this particular area in Saudi Arabia, and remember, Mount Sinai is in Saudi Arabia. It is not in the Sinai Peninsula. The book of Galatians says, Paul wrote, that Sinai is in Arabia. And you go to this particular site in Arabia, and you can see this stone uh, altar that is there, and it has this worship to a calf that is on the side, a cow. 
And also there are these remnants, these ruins of these pillars that were made and it's out in the middle of nowhere at the base of this mountain. This same mountain, the top of this mountain range is completely black like it had been burned. And we'll know as we go through the rest of this chapter that God descended upon it in fire and the whole top of this mountain range was scorched like it was burned with fire, put inside of a furnace. And so Moses, he prepared to meet the Lord. He had these young men in Israel offer up these burnt offerings, the sacrifice of the young bulls and the fellowship offering to the Lord. And so this is how they prepared to meet God. Then verse 8 says, Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with these words. Now, worship required a life. In order for us to present ourselves to God, there has to be a blood sacrifice. Because we have sinned, his price for that sin is a life. Now, since our lives are imperfect, it is an imperfect sacrifice if we were to sacrifice our own lives. Scripture says that the life of an individual or a creature is in its blood, according to Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11. God goes on to say in that verse, And I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. And so in the Old Testament, God said a life had to be given in order for you to approach God. In order for any one of us to approach God, we would have had to make make a blood sacrifice. That blood would have had to have been sprinkled on the altar in the temple or in the tabernacle. On this particular case, it was a ready-made altar that was there, or they fashioned an altar, and he sprinkled it on this altar, and he also took the blood, and he sprinkled it on the people. Now, that seems barbaric. I mean, if you've ever had blood splattered on you that belongs to someone else or some other animal, it's it's not a very good thing. And God intended it to be that way. He intended it not to be something that was supposed to be joyful. And in the Old Testament, when that blood was used, when it was shed and it was sprinkled on the altar and sprinkled on the individual, the only thing that did was provide a covering that God could look upon the individual and not judge the individual and have a conversation. It did not remove sin or the guilt of sin it only covered it over when jesus was crucified it removed the sin as far as the east is from the west and you've heard this before if you start traveling east when do you hit west you never do that's how far god has separated our sins from one another the east as far as the east is from the west he has separated our sins he didn't say north and south because if you go north, as soon as you get to the North Pole, you start heading south. But if you go east, you'll never run into the west. And so that's the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. God just allowed the sins to be covered over an atonement cover, so to speak. But in the New Testament, God completely removes our sin. Also with this, Worship revealed the glory of God. In verse 9, Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel. So see, we have a, an account, a witness, that all of these men saw God face to face. Now, I don't know if you've ever pondered this. This is huge. The last time God showed up 
in mass was really not in mass. It was with Adam and Eve, right? Now, he talked with Noah, and he probably showed up and talked to Noah and individuals like that from time to time. But when we have Moses here, Moses shows up with all of these people, and God shows up and presents himself to the people. And it wasn't just bodily form there was much more to him under his feet was something like a pavement made of sapphire clear as the sky itself but God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites they saw God and ate and drank so not only did they see him but they saw him in a glory or in a glorious state it wasn't just like me seeing you and you seeing me He was radiating, and where his feet touched, there was this, he says it's like sapphire, clear as crystal. And to see a floor like that, have you guys seen the pictures of the bridge in China that is all glass? They were expecting 8,000 visitors a day. And I think they said it's four or eight times that many people showing up. And it's this bridge that's over this huge gorge. And the scenery is just spectacular. And if you go out there and you're standing on this huge glass plate and you look down, you can get that feeling of vertigo being too high. And, you know, you're just looking straight down and you're going, wow, this is really weird. And I don't know how this took place because these men are standing there. But when they look at God underneath him is this sea of glass is what's there. And I'm sure his glory was radiating at that time. But this is something to be pondered because Scripture says several times no one has ever seen God. So what is this? Now, I just want to demonstrate this point here. In Genesis chapter 7, verse 1, it says, Now when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. So we have a case where God showed up and talked to Abraham, Abram, face to face in chapter 18 verse 1 it says now the lord appeared to him by the oaks of mamre referring to abraham again god shows up and appears i don't know if he just materialized or if he just came walking from a distance and came walking up exodus chapter 6 verse 2 to 3 god spoke further to moses and said to him i am the lord and i appeared to abraham isaac jacob as god almighty but my name lord I did not make myself known to them. And so God reveals himself at this particular time to Moses in a greater way. He says he's, he spoke to these other individuals, appeared to them alone, and now he's appearing to over 70 individuals at one time. And they're all becoming a witness of God and who he is. Numbers chapter 12, verses 6 through 8. He said, hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, shall make myself known to him in a vision. I shall speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my household. With him I speak mouth to mouth, even openly and not in dark sayings. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why when were you, or why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? So Moses, he would sit down and have a conversation. They would pull up a chair or a rock. They would sit with each other. And it would happen for hours. They would go back and forth. Go, Moses would go into the tent of meeting. God would show up there and go, God would sit down and go, so hey, Moses, tell me, 
Tell me about these guys who are out there, these rebellious people. What's going on today? And he would have a conversation with Moses, and Moses would probably say, Hey, Lord, they're just so obstinate. They're so stiff-necked. What should I do? It's okay, Moses. I love that. I mean, the conversation would just go on and on. And he said, Now, listen, this is what I want you to do. I want you to write down these things. I want you to continue to be an author of these next five books. I want you to write Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. And you're going to put this down. You're going to read it to the people. And he would instruct them about everything that he was supposed to do and listen this is the way the temple is supposed to look i want you to set it up this way with sea cow hides and there's going to be colors on the inside and he would describe everything to moses that had to be done now moses is listening he's probably writing it down okay i'll get it and god probably said something like don't worry about it moses you'll remember it when the time comes i'll make you remember it and everything's going to be just fine and god was gracious and he was forgiving and i'm sure he actually hugged Jesus. Imagine that. Probably walked in, you know, the the Jewish, the Semitic peoples, they are a hugging, kissing people. We are not so much here. If we see a distant family member at the most, and certainly a family member, a lot of us hug, a lot of us give handshakes, things like that. Maybe you grew up in a household that hugged. I didn't. I didn't grow four boys and a Marine. Uh, that's what we had in our household we hit each other you know we wrestled each other we didn't hug each other anything like that but you know it's just one of those things i didn't start hugging people until i became a christian and the first time i got hugged i stiffened like a piece of rosewood you know i just oh 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 man and then i found out all these christians hugged all the time and it's all right i'm just gonna get over it i'm just gonna do this and i'm sure moses showed up with jesus gave him a big hug and jesus said you know it's gonna be okay just hang in there moses and moses stuck with the whole program until he's 120 years old i can do this you know as long as i get my hugs from god everything's gonna be all just fine And I'm sure some of the people got jealous of that. You get to talk to God. You get to hug him. Well, why don't you go be perfect or something? I'm sure there was murmuring and everything going on. As I just read to you in the book of Numbers, they were speaking against Moses. And God would show up directly and encourage him. Now, this is something to be remembered. There's something to learn from this, as we'll get to in a little bit. Acts chapter 7, verse 2. And he, Stephen, said, Hear me, brethren and fathers, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham and when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. So we have these, these calculated, documented incidents of God showing up and presenting himself. Even when Moses wanted to see God's glory, God said, you cannot look at me and live. And so he took Moses and he stuck him in a cleft of a rock. And as he went by, he said, you cannot look at me. You can only look at the glory that passes by once I pass by. Because otherwise he would die. In Exodus chapter 33, verse 20, he said there, you cannot see my face for no one can see me and live. Now this seems like a contradiction. He's showing up to over 70 people. Exodus 33:20 says, nobody can see me and live. John chapter 1 verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. So the New Testament tells us that nobody has seen God at any time. John chapter 5 verse 37, time out. Is it cold in here? Okay, consensus again. 
As the Father who sent me has testified of me, you have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. John chapter 6, verse 46. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. And 1 Timothy 6, verses 15 and 16. He who is blessed... And only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, who no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion forever. Now, in the book of John, we just went through this in chapter 8 and chapter 5. In one account, Jesus says, if I testify of myself, my testimony is not valid. In John chapter 8, I think it's verse 41, He says, I testify about myself, and it is valid. There seems to be a contradiction there until Karen wisely came up, led by the Spirit, said, no, if you're the only witness showing up by yourself, your testimony is not valid. But there were others that were testifying to Jesus Christ. It was John the Baptist. It was God the Father. Those two were sufficient in order to give a testimony or just Jesus himself and God because they're both God. Both of these, the Father and the Son are God and their testimony is valid. And so we are able to resolve that seeming contradiction and people will come along and say, the Bible is full of contradictions and they'll take two verses like that, put them right against each other and say, see, you can't trust the Bible. And I made the point on Wednesday, it's not that there's a contradiction, it's that our understanding is lacking. We don't have enough information. The same thing is true here. Both of these things are true. God appeared, and even on the Mount of Transfiguration, God appeared, and what did the disciples see? His glory. So how can you see God in his glory, and yet the scripture says nobody can look at the glory of God? Well, there's obviously some middle ground in there that works. But people want to say, no, you can't trust the Bible. Look at all these contradictions in here. It's just that our understanding is lacking, and there's some reasonable explanations for this. The rabbis said, well, you just saw a manifestation of God. I don't think that that's what they saw. I think they saw Jesus Christ. Also, they saw as much of the visible presence of God as they could without dying. Now, I believe that. I believe that if God... You know a dimmer switch? I just dimmed our hallway last night as I was walking through there. Our granddaughter was spending the night, and she likes the hall light on, you know? So it was a little bright for me, you know? So I go, okay, I'm going to dim this thing down. I could still see the lights. It was all there. But you know when you get up in the middle of the night, and uh, like I got this new alarm clock, and this new alarm clock, if you just put your hand over it, it lights up, and it's like, supernova no it's just way too bright to look at that little alarm clock well the same thing with god's glory if god put that dimmer switch all the way up it would fry everything earthly in his presence and so he turns it up just a little bit just a smidge to where they get an idea of what's going on That is what I believe God did. Some others said maybe it was an angel of the Lord. It wasn't God himself. And others said, well, maybe it's a vision. There's a case of this in Isaiah chapter 6 and also in Ezekiel. Maybe it was just a likeness, a representation of some kind. I believe it was God, Jesus Christ, and he appeared to them in bodily form. He was there. They could touch him. They could fellowship with him. And this was all so that they would see his glory and be able to give a testimony to the people back into the camp. Verse 12, the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and stay here. 
And I will give you tablets of stone with the law and commandments I have written for their instruction. So worship was responded to by God. Remember, he set up the 12 pillars that were there. And those pillars were representations of each particular clan or family and he did that and he had this sacrifice and he was making this preparation uh, to meet God but God responded to this worship and said okay come up I'm going to have fellowship with you at this particular point it was only the 70 plus that were going up there but then he calls Moses individually then Moses set out verse 13 with Joshua his aide and Moses went up on the mountain of God he said to the elders Wait here for us until we come back to you. Aaron and her are with you, and anyone involved in a dispute can go to them. So he leaves the authority of making decisions with Aaron and with her, and they're going to rule over the people for a particular period of time. Verse 15, when Moses went up to the mountain, the cloud covered it. And the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days, the cloud covered the mountain. And on the seventh day, the Lord called Moses from within the cloud. To the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. Then Moses entered the cloud as he went up on the mountain and stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. So Moses and Aaron, they take off, they go on a hike, they start heading up the mountain. And when they're in the mountain, this smoke comes onto the mountain. And how long did they have to wait? A week. Sitting there for a week. And he already told the people, we'll be back. Okay. You'll be back. It's already been a week. And how long was it ultimately? Here's Aaron. He's sitting up there on the mountain with Moses. Moses goes on ahead for 40 days. Aaron's sitting there going, okay, let's see. It's day 28, and Moses is still up. The cloud's still here, so that's good, I guess. And Okay, it's day 35, and Moses, I wonder where Moses is. And he's sitting there, and then it turns into day 40. And, of course, there's some havoc that's being reaped in the camp, and it's not being good. And we'll get to that story in a little bit. But Moses is gone for 40 days. Now, are you patient to have a response, waiting 40 days for the Lord to answer? How many times have you offered a prayer? Lord, I need an answer now. And there's nothing. It's just dead silence. You don't hear anything. You don't read anything. You don't get any direction. You're going, what is going on? I, I don't hear the Lord. You're just supposed to sit and occupy. Now, Aaron was alone. But the rest of them went back to the camp. What about Aaron? He does, he's caught in between. You know, he's the servant of Moses. And Moses is up there fellowshipping with God. What did God talk to Moses about for 10 or for 40 days? Didn't he just give him the Ten Commandments? You know, we saw it. Charlton Heston got it. The finger of God came down, wrote it down there, and he took the two tablets. How long does that take to write it out? He was there for 40 days. Now, I don't know if God just worked a timelessness thing there or it was actually 40 days that he spent talking with God face to face. I don't know how it worked out, but God responded to the worship, brought up Moses and said, okay, we're establishing everything from this point forward. So worship remitted required all to be patiently committed. When this worship came forth, God then calls on us to be patient, to occupy We don't have all of our questions answered. He just says, be patient. Just wait. It's going to happen. Everything that I've said, it's going to be brought to fruition. You just need to learn to wait. Because God is the father of all eternity. 
And we're going to be with him forever. And by the time we are finished with this life, that next one will make this one look like a wisp. And eventually, it won't even come to mind. That's what scripture says in the book of Isaiah. We won't even remember Calvary Chapel Lakeside. We won't remember it. And we're going, well, wait a second. What about my wife or my husband? If they're saved, they're going to be there and you're going to know them for all of eternity. Not only will you know your wife and your husband and your children that are saved, you'll know everybody up there on a first name basis. Even though you've never met them before, God is going to give you that knowledge. And we're going to be intimately involved with everybody who is up there. And it's going to be millions and millions and billions of people, I'm sure, over all of history, the people that have been saved, that are trusted in God, they're all going to be there. And we're going to have a fabulous time. But this stuff back here, we're just simply not going to remember after it's all over. Not that I believe God wipes it from our mind. It's just we're going to be so occupied... You're not even going to think about it. I mean, were you, did you come here today thinking about what you did in kindergarten? <laughs> no. Somebody goes, yeah, I did. No. We don't think about that stuff. We don't think about our childhood on a regular basis. Every once in a while, but pretty soon you get older and it just doesn't even come to mind. We're focused on something else and we are somewhere else. So that is what took place with the Jews and with Moses. Now let's make this parallel with our worship as Christians. Worship was at a distance except with Moses. Worship was at a distance for the human race, Christian community, except with Jesus. Jesus had this face-to-face with the Father, so to speak. Even though the Father doesn't have a face, the Father doesn't have hands, when we go to heaven, we are going to see Jesus. We will not see the Father. The Father does not have the body. And if somebody says, well, what do you mean we're not going to see the Father? Isn't the Trinity there? You know, I've seen little statues of that. No, if you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father, right? And if you've experienced the Holy Spirit, you've experienced Jesus. They are all one. And so Moses worshiped closely uh, with God. Jesus worshiped closely with the Father, and we will worship closely with the Father and the Son via the Holy Spirit. Secondly, worship required a life. The worship for us required the life of Jesus. Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to offer acceptable worship to God. Thirdly, worship revealed the glory of God. We are the true worshipers of Christ. His glory is revealed to us and will be revealed in us. The Lord met the Israelites and shared a meal with him. What did they share? They shared a meal. And what was given before they shared a meal? The blood. What do we do? We share a meal in remembrance of him, which we are going to receive today, which is communion. We receive the meal of the bread and also the blood. God set this up. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, it talks about God having fellowship with us. It says, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Which I believe has two meanings. We will receive our spiritual food from God, but we have the marriage supper of the Lamb as well. In Revelation chapter 9, verse 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding supper of the lamb has come. His bride has made herself ready. We are, I believe we're going to sit down and actually have a meal. You might say it tastes like chicken, but it's the best chicken I've ever had. And God is going to prepare all of that for us. And we're going to eat and have fellowship. That's what God did with these elders. And that was foreshadowing what is going to happen with us. 
We are going to sit down, see Jesus Christ face to face, have a meal with him, and you get to have a conversation with him. Now, how is he going to do that with you and the billions of others that are up there? I have no idea how he's going to do that. But if you want to talk to him face to face, you're going to get to. Imagine that, talking to God face to face. And you're going to see him like these guys saw him, only more so. The dimmer is going to be all the way up. It is just going to be blazing. And guess what you're going to be? All the way up, radiating the glory of God at the same time. And you're going to look at each other going, hey, you look good. (laughs) I look good. Just radiating out. We're going to have those perfect bodies, those resurrected body at that time. And so we experience the meal and the blood just like the elders did. Worship was responded to by God. God responds to our worship just as he did to the worship of the Israelites that they offered. And he does it with us by filling us with the Holy Spirit. Have you ever heard the uh, phrase, be filled with the Spirit? When we worship God, God comes to us and says, I'm going to fill you with overflowing with this love. There are times like when we play worship, (coughs) when you are leading worship, there are times where you're worried about the mechanics. And you, you go, okay, I'm t- I got to sing right here. I got to play right here. And you're focused on that. Then there's other times where you get to break into worship yourself as you lead worship. And it, it is just spectacular. And that needs to be the aim of everybody who participates in worship is not leading worship. There are times where you come in and you're going, okay, yeah, I got to look at the words up there and I can barely see them. Oh, that may be a wrong word. Okay, I'm focusing on that. Who just sat down next to me? I'm going to look real quick to see who it was and I'm going to go back to worship right here. And what's taking place afterwards? I wonder if they're going to have my favorite donuts out there and some coffee. And, you know, you get sidetracked with afterwards. I'm going to go and get some lunch and I'm going to have a good time of fellowship. And you're just mouthing the words or not even mouthing the words. And you're not entering into worship. There's other times where you relinquish yourself to God. He fills you with his spirit. Sometimes you can get all tingly on the inside. Some people say, that's just you. And, you know, I've had both where it's just me and it's God. And you go, whoa, man, that was God right there. And you get to experience him firsthand. And he fills you with his his spirit. And you have all this love flowing out, just overflowing like a spring or a fountain. And it's all good. God responds to us in that way. Sin hinders that. And so if, if we're involved in sin, God just says, nope, not turning on the spigot today until we repent. And then God says, okay, I forgive you. He's faithful and just to do it. And when he forgives us, he fills us again when we ask for it. That's the gracious God that we serve. Now, worship remitted required all to be patiently committed. Moses went up to the mountain of God for 40 days. Jesus went into the wilderness for 40 days at the beginning of his ministry. And 40 is said to be the number of testing. And for both of these individuals, it was, as well as for the Israelites. It was a time of testing. But for us, in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into the grace in which we now stand. And so we have that fellowship with God. We've gone right in there with them. Just like Moses has gone up to the mountain, we get to go into the throne room of God. And that's what we're after. As long as we divest ourselves of ourselves, God says, I will fill you and I will use you. In your weakness, I am made strong. So what do we have here? We have the Israelites who worshipped in a way that was directed by Moses. 
There was a preparation. Moses got up early. He established 12 pillars as a sign to the people who they were before God. Each tribe had an equal representation before God as symbolized by the pillars. He instructed the young men to offer sacrifices. He opened the word. They read it to the people. The people were in agreement that they would be careful to do everything the Lord commanded. That was the style set up for worship. God dictated this is how it happens. This is how we're supposed to do it as well. We worship in a way that is directed by Christ. First, there's preparation. When you get up in the morning, and of course to be here, you had to get up in the morning, you have to prepare your heart. Okay, I'm going to church. If you didn't say, Lord, okay, I'm going to see you this morning, or so to speak. I'm going to see your body. I'm going to experience that. You get a start in the day. You come to church in the morning. You don't come at 3 o'clock. The 12 pillars spoke of equal representation before God. Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12 talks about each one of us being a member of the body of Christ. And we all have representation before God. And Jesus Christ is our pillar. He stands before each one of us. These pillars were between the people and the mountain of God. Jesus Christ is before us and before God the Father. That's how this worked. God set this up so we would see this imagery in the Old Testament. Our instruction is to be generational. We're to teach the young men. Those of us who are getting a little older, we're to nab people by the back of the neck, not in a forceful way, in a laying hands on kind of way. You know, we grab them and we say, come on, man, we're going to serve the Lord. And when you get some of these young kids and you're able to instruct them and they actually get it, they cling to it, they go, okay, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. It brings nothing but joy. And so especially the young men, because if you get the young men, what do you get? You get the whole family eventually because they follow the leading of the husband, of the father. That's why it's so important that the men are involved in worship, that we don't just abrogate that. And now the wife's more spiritual than I am. You know, she's the one that prays more and goes to church more. And, you know, she goes to all these meetings. And one of the things that Patty and I were discussing this last week is women have a tendency and they need to be warned against this. She was warned against this at a pastor's wife's conference that the women can control the calendar in the church because they're the ones that are like, we got to do this for Christ and we got to do this for the ladies where the guys are whatever, man. Okay, it's, it's all good. You know, are there donuts? And, you know, that's how we do it as guys. And we shouldn't do that as guys. We should be the ones on fire just blazing up everything around the church and all the women and all the kids. And we need to follow Christ to be an example. The kids are supposed to look up to their fathers for direction. That's what they're supposed to do. If we have sons, we need to bring them along. Say, man, you need to be worshiping God. What are you doing here? Let me tell you about God. If you don't know about God, I recently met him or I've known him for years. Let me re-instruct you on who he is. So that's our job. That's what Moses did. He got these young men. They committed the sacrifice. They brought the sacrifices to God. And we are to offer our bodies as sacrifice according to Romans chapter 12, verse 1. We are also to agree to do everything the Lord commands. That's what the people did as a response to God. He showed up. He revealed himself to the people. And the people said, we will do everything you you have asked. And so that's how God laid it out. Now, with all of this, with every law, came a decision. We have the Ten Commandments. We have a couple of chapters of doing this and not doing that and how to recompense somebody if they've been wronged. But we are supposed to make a decision on a daily basis to be obedient or disobedient, to submit or to resist. 
Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19, God had something against the Israelites. It reads there, This day I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice, and hold fast to him. For the Lord is your life. When we make these decisions, it's, it's not the following of a law. It's the following of Christ. How do you follow Christ? You learn about him in the word. If you learn about him in the word, you are able to follow him, to cling to him. How do you do that exactly? Do you just read it and follow it? No, you can't do it on your own. You have to have the Holy Spirit. And even then, the flesh gets in the way. That's why God says we're to pick up our cross daily, crucify our flesh daily. Are we going to be 100% successful? No, we're not. And we get so guilt-ridden because of that. We just turn to God and we say, God, forgive me. I'm going to get right back up and I'm going to head in your direction. But to have the Holy Spirit, you have to have, ask the Holy Spirit to come in. You have to say, Father, save me from my sins. When we do that, he says, I will give you my Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing the things which are to come and God lives in us. I think most all of us know that already in here. And if we walk in the Spirit, we have the blessings of life. If we walk in the flesh, we have the misery of life if we have God within us. To get that, we simply confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead and we shall be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified and with your mouth that you confess and are saved. That's all that has to be done. And what we're going to do here as part of our worship, the things that we have followed here are just like what the Israelites followed. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. We are going to play a song. And if you haven't asked Christ to save you as the song is being sung, just ask him. You know, he's beautiful. He's great. He's wonderful. He wants to save us. He wants to envelop us. He wants to indwell us. And if you feel you've been lacking lately, just say, Lord, fill me. And as we recognize who he is, we're going to pass out the cup and the bread. And I want you to hold on to it until we can all participate in receiving it together. And I'll talk a little bit about communion before we actually do that. So if you guys would come forward and pass this out.